0: section thirteen of edward the black prince by louise Creighton. this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter eleven edward the jubilee the christmas after the treaty of bretigny was spent by edward and his court with great splendour at woodstock when the holidays were over the king went to winchester where he had summoned his parliament to meet him on the twenty fourth of january thirteen sixty one he told them all the articles of the peace concluded between him and the king of france with which they expressed themselves entirely satisfied on the last day of january the archbishop of canterbury celebrated the mass of the holy trinity in the presence of the court and parliament returning thanks for the peace after the mass, torches were lighted and crosses held up over the Eucharist, the king and his sons standing up in the presence of the French hostages. Then all those lords who had not yet sworn to keep the peace took the oath and signed a solemn declaration that they would observe all the conditions. The black prince was now thirty-one years of age and still unmarried. Struck, it is said, by the beauty of his cousin Joan of Kent, he obtained the consent of his father to marry her. Joan was of the blood royal of England, being daughter of Edmund, Earl of Kent, son of Edward I. She had already been twice married, and was now a widow and thirty-three years of age, somewhat older than the Black Prince. Her great beauty had won for her the name of the fair maid of Kent, and there is no reason to suppose that she had lost any of her charms at the time of her marriage to the Black Prince. The marriage took place on the 10th October, 1361, and in the following year, on the 14th July, Edward III solemnly invested the Black Prince with the Principality of Aquitaine and Gascony, giving him the title of Duke of Aquitaine. The peace and prosperity of England was disturbed in 1362 by a second outbreak of the plague, which lasted from August till May. It was not so destructive as it had been the first time, but it seems to have been more fatal amongst the higher ranks of society. Amongst others, the king's cousin, the Duke of Lancaster, died of it. He left behind him only two daughters. The elder had been married to the Earl of Aeneau, and the younger, Blanche, had married, in 1359, Edward's third son, John of Gaunt blanche on the death of her elder sister became heiress of all her father's great wealth and it is in her right that john of gaunt became duke of lancaster this marriage of john of gaunt has a special interest to us as it is said to have inspired one of chaucer's earliest poems the assembly of fowls or the parliament of birds the origin of the connection between chaucer and john of gaunt is not known but it seems to have begun early in the poet's life. Geoffrey Chaucer was the son of a London vintner, and seems most probably to have been born in 1340. The facts of his early life are involved in obscurity, and we do not know whether his education was due to the wealth and enlightened views of his father, or to his having been early taken under royal patronage. John of Gaunt was never a popular man in English history, but he seems to have had the capacity of attracting to him the great literary characters of his age for we know that chaucer and wycliffe were intimately connected with him poetry had at that time become very fashionable and was cultivated more especially in france by men of the highest rank chaucer therefore though of humble birth might hope to raise himself by his genius to be the friend even of a royal prince If the date assigned to the Assembly of Fowls, 1358, be a true one, it must rank as one of his earliest poems. He was then only eighteen years of age, but there are no signs of an unripe intellect about the poem. It is full of the freshness and life which always remained such a distinguishing characteristic of Chaucer. The poet has fallen asleep over his book, and he dreams that he is led into a beautiful park walled with green stone with a few of his light delicate touches he brings before us the whole scene the trees clad with leaves that a shall last the garden full of blossomed boas it is the orderly sweet fresh landscape that the mediaeval poet loved at last he came to the spot where all the birds were gathered together before the noble goddess nature that since it was st valentine's day each might choose his mate perched on nature's hand was a beautiful female eagle by whom the poet is supposed to have signified the lady blanche of lancaster three eagles disputed vehemently as to which of them shall be her mate and nature refers the question to the assembly of birds each kind of bird chooses a representative to speak for them and in the speeches of the different birds there is ample scope for chaucer's playful humour and irony characteristic of the spirit of chivalry is the great deference paid by the suitors to the lady herself she is the sovereign lady whom the royal eagle beseeches to be his through her mercy no constraint is to be put on her choice and nature as judge decides that she shall have him on whom her heart is set she bashfully asks for a year's respite in which to make her choice this charming little poem may almost be taken as a type of the excellencies of chaucer it shows us his love of nature his vivacity his humour like all that he has written it reflects faithfully the spirit of his age and breathes the very atmosphere of chivalry chaucer was no doubt strongly influenced by the french trouvaire though first amongst the great english poets he was an outcome of the poetic movement which had been going on for two centuries in the south of france and in italy he was the english representative of the great burst of medieval poetry but came late in its development and originated no great movement in england he had some few successors and imitators but after his death there is no great name in english literature till the revival of letters under the tudors it is not difficult to see how French influences were brought to bear upon Chaucer. In those days there was constant intercourse between France and England. Chaucer himself went to France, as we have seen, with the royal army in 1359, and remained there a year till he was ransomed by Edward Third. He also later on in his life visited Italy, and was intimately acquainted with the writings of Boccaccio and Petrarch from whom he borrowed largely but it was from the french trouvere that he received his great impulse he belonged to their school and adopted their form and imagery one of his first works was a translation of the romance of the rose yet he was no imitator he was inspired by the spirit of the trouvere, but everything he did is stamped with his own strong individuality and has a decidedly english character his greatest work the canterbury tales is most distinctively english he wrote another poem on the occasion of the death of the duchess blanche in thirteen sixty nine called the book of the duchess in which he expresses the grief of the duke of lancaster the setting of this poem is again quite in the character of the trouvère. he employs his favourite machinery of a dream which opens with the singing of birds on a may morning as they sat among upon me chamber roof withuta, upon the Tils over all buta, and songen an Evrich in his wheeze the most solemn servise be not that ever man y erd. he gives us an interesting picture of a mediaeval room by describing that in which he lay it was painted all over with frescoes illustrating the romance of the rose and the windows were filled with beautiful painted glass on which was wrought the history of the siege of troy as he lies in bed he hears the sound of a horn and jumps up that he may follow the hunt then as he wanders through the wood he comes upon a knight sitting mourning at the foot of an oak tree this of course is john of gaunt who with bitter tears deplores the death of his lady chaucer continued all his life to find a powerful friend in john of gaunt to his influence he doubtless owed various offices which he held at different times he was several times sent abroad in secret affairs of state and at last obtained a permanent office in london with a salary and besides had a pension granted to him his connection with john of gaunt was strengthened by the fact that his wife's sister catherine swinford who had been in the service of the duchess blanche first became the duke's mistress and afterwards his third wife The advantage of such a patron to the poet must have been great, as it relieved him from all anxiety about money and permitted him to devote most of his energy to his art. We cannot overestimate what Chaucer did for the English language. Before his time, French was the common language of the court, the schools, the law courts, and all the higher classes of society. The dialects spoken in different parts of England differed widely from one another, and it remained a question which of these dialects should triumph and form the cultivated english language it was chaucer who decided this question it was his language that was to become the standard of english this was due to the force of his genius which made men feel the beauty the power and the capacities of the language which he used so that insensibly it became the language of all cultivated men and as the English language developed, it triumphed over the French. One of the acts which commemorated Edward III's jubilee is an edict in which he said that as the French tongue was much unknown in the country, all pleas should be henceforth in English. On the 14th November, 1362, Edward III celebrated his jubilee, that is, his 50th birthday, in honour of the day he proclaimed a general pardon and set all prisoners at liberty and recalled all exiles to commemorate it still further he conferred various dignities upon his sons lionel was made duke of clarence john of gaunt was solemnly raised to the dignity of duke of lancaster the king in full parliament girt him with a sword and set upon his head a cap of fur and a circlet of gold and pearls edmund the fourth son was made earl of cambridge this was the climax of edward's prosperity on his fiftieth birthday he might look back upon his life and say that fortune had indeed favoured him but from henceforth things did not go so well misfortunes and troubles marked the last years of his life and in the end he was destined to lose almost all that he had won it is not difficult to see how this came about. Edward Third was a brave and accomplished knight, a man full of energy and interests, anxious to protect commerce and manufacture, to increase the wealth of his people, and to win glory for himself by his wars. But he had no great purpose in his life. He collected mighty armies at an enormous expense and led them into the enemy's country without any definite scheme of what he meant to do, His own bravery and that of his soldiers enabled him to win great victories, but not content with grasping firmly what he had once got, he indulged in an ambitious dream of one day winning the crown of France. Even when the Peace of Bretigny had secured to him the great Duchy of Aquitaine, neither he nor the Black Prince had sufficient political wisdom to take such steps as would have preserved it for the English crown. They had won it, but they could not keep it over the joy of edward's jubilee there hung no shadow of distrust for the future the next year the black prince was to go and take up his abode in his new duchy of Aquitaine, and the months before his departure were filled up with hunting parties in the royal forests which were conducted with the greatest possible magnificence and with no sparing of expense the king and queen with their children spent christmas at the black prince's manor of berkhamstead near london there were many jousts and tournaments and all the usual christmas games and festivities the general extravagance and love of dress must have increased to an alarming extent for the next year is marked by a sumptuary statute which aimed at diminishing extravagance and high prices it decreed that each merchant was to deal only with one sort of merchandise which he must choose before the feast of candlemas handcraftsmen also were to practice only one mystery, as the trades were then called, exceptions only being allowed in the case of women workers. The goldsmiths were to make their work sterling, and each master goldsmith was to have his own mark. His work must be assayed by the royal surveyors, who were to put the king's mark on it, and then the goldsmith was to have put his own mark. No goldsmith might make both gold and silver plate the prices at which he was to sell his work were fixed the statute went on to regulate matters of mere personal expenditure it ordained that the poor were to eat and drink in the manner that pertaineth to them and not excessively that they were not to eat fish or meat more than once a day seeing that various people wore clothing above their estate and degree it ordained that the handicraftsmen and yeomen were not to wear cloth above a certain price and no silk and embroidery, ribbons or gold and silver ornaments. The ploughmen and all agricultural laborers were only to wear tunics of blanket or russet with girdles of linen. Above all, no one, except persons of the highest rank, was to wear fur or pearls. The statute was not prompted by any feeling of the evils of luxury among the ruling classes. About the time of its promulgation, Archbishop Simon Islip, issued a remonstrance against the abuses the foppery and extravagance of the court the upper classes had no intention of reforming their own extravagance but they wished to have the monopoly of all luxuries and they fancied that the more extensive use of fine clothes and various kinds of victuals greatly increased their price these sumptuary laws show with what bitter jealousy the nobility regarded the growing wealth and prosperity of the merchant classes the burghers of london were indeed becoming very rich and powerful about this time henry Picard, a vintner the lord mayor of london sumptuously feasted edward iii the black prince david bruce king of scotland the king of cyprus who had come to ask edward's help against the turks and many nobles afterwards he kept open house to any who liked to play at dice or hazard with him whilst his wife the lady margaret received the ladies in her upper room The king of Cyprus engaged in play with Picard and won fifty marks. But Picard was a good player and soon won back more than he had lost, at which the king was much vexed. He tried to hide his irritation, but Picard saw it and said to him, My lord king, be not aggrieved. I covet not your gold, but your play, for I have not bid you hither that I might grieve you, but that amongst other things I might try your play then he gave him his money back again and distributed more among his servants he gave also many rich gifts to edward the third his son and the knights who had dined with them at a later period the city bought a large quantity of plate to present to the black prince at a cost of six hundred and eighty three pounds ten shillings fourpence which equals about ten thousand two hundred and fifty two pounds of our money amongst other articles all of silver were ten dozen porringers five dozen salt cellars and twenty chargers. There were also three gilded basins, six gilded pots, a gilded cup in the form of an acorn, and a pair of ivory bottles. The total number of articles was 279. Not only among the people at large, but still more at the English court itself had extravagance in dress and manner of living increased at an enormous rate old english simplicity was more than ever forgotten and large sums of money were wasted on every side merely on display in matters of food and clothing the remonstrance of archbishop islip attracted some attention but produced as little effect on the fashions of the day as did the sumptuary laws just passed by parliament display was characteristic of edward and where the king set the example it was only likely that the people would follow the mass of the clergy were worse than the people they who ought to have set an example of greater sobriety and simplicity were especially renowned for their love of good eating and fine clothes whilst they followed the chase and gave themselves up to pleasure of every kind they left their people wandering as flocks without shepherds a noticeable event occurred in the year thirteen sixty two some of the french hostages had begun to be weary of their confinement and asked edward's permission to go to calais and make some excursions into the surrounding country promising never to be absent for more than four days at a time the king believing that he might trust their promise granted their request but the duke of anjou basely took advantage of this permission to break his parole and went off to paris his father king john was so deeply grieved at this breach of faith That he determined to go back himself to England as a prisoner in the place of his son who had escaped. The English received him with great respect and courtesy, and he took up his abode again at the Savoy Palace. Edward did all he could to make his captivity pleasant, but he was seized with a mortal illness and died three months after his return to England. End of section 13.